0: This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London.
1: Hi, you're listening to Postocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We're a team of PhD students at King's College London trying to navigate this crazy world and we'll be sharing the highs and the lows of postgraduate study. This week, Ale will be talking to Dr. Sam Westwood. We'll be discussing the hot topic of open science. What is it? Why should we be talking about it? And how it's changing the face of research. Watch this space. Over to you, Ale.
2: Thanks, Elisa. So hi, guys. I'm Ale and I'm here with Sam. So Sam, we actually met at uh, Riot Science a few weeks ago. Yes, so we maybe you should just start by telling us, you know, kind of who you are, what you do and kind of how you got started at Riot.
0: Uh, okay, uh, well, I'm Sam Westwood, so I'm a postdoc. I started at King's in 2017. So my job is working on a, a randomised control trial looking at the effects of brain stimulation and cognitive training to see whether it can be an alternative treatment for, for ADHD. Mm-hmm. And that's my main role. And then in 20... well, earlier this year, I was made the local uh, lead for the UK Reproducibility Network. And in that capacity, I run one open uh, research initiative called the Riot Science Club. It stands for Reproducible, Interpretable, Open and Transparent Science. Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, And the idea with the Riot's Club is that we run weekly uh, talks and workshops. And these are designed to support and promote open research, uh, Mm -hmm. particularly open research practices.
2: So what what sparked your interest in Open research and well, science and all well, that.
0: My story began when I did my PhD. Mm-hmm. So I started my PhD in 2013. And it was uh, for a project looking at brain stimulation. So TDCS, transcranial direct current stimulation, which is what I use now in my postdoc. And the, the project was designed by my PI at the time. And she had the idea of basically using TDCS to enhance language and memory because there's been a mm, lot of studies that showed this so Seven healthy controls healthy controls yeah. yes healthy controls so we ran a series of experiments and we learned every which way possible that you don't get an effect mm-hmm. and so I was sort of thinking well why why is this because everybody else is is reporting positive effects and by everybody I mean everybody yeah. it was sort of exponential the amount of papers that was being published each year the last time I did it I totted up the numbers, I think it was nearly 2,000 papers had been published since 2005 and between 2005 and 2010, Mm. so it's a lot of papers. And around that time when I found that I had loads of null effects, um, the Open Science Collaboration published that multi-site study uh, that tried to replicate 100 uh, findings and I think 30% of them replicated and that was my sort of introduction to open research and it became a really invaluable tool to interpret my findings, mm. basically.
2: That's, that's really interesting. Do you mind maybe explaining to the readers what mm-hmm. open science actually is and what uh, does it mean?
0: I wish you hadn't asked that because <laughs> it's a really nebulous term mm-hmm. and there's no one way. I'll try, I'll try, yeah. I'll try. Okay. So, so basically what it aims to do is to try and make science as rigorous as possible and open as possible. Mm-hmm. And to do that, there are a host of uh, research practices. And within those, there's like a spectrum of how much you commit to those kind of research Mm -hmm. practices. So the ones that people might be familiar with is just open access publication. Mm -hmm. However, there are more than that. So there's sort of registering your protocol before data collection or doing a registered report which is registering your protocol but mm-hmm. also submitting that to a journal and then potentially getting a publication at the end of it so long as mm-hmm. what you said you were going to do is what you did do after you've collected it's the very, data. It's very
2: interesting because you mentioned that it yeah. it covers quite a wide array of yes, different yeah. things that you could yeah. do. Do you yeah. feel like open science is kind of an all-or-nothing sort of thing no, or do you, no, you think no, that no, people no. could do just small things? No,
0: or? no, no. It's, it's every little helps. That's the sort of phrase. So Kirsty Whittaker, who's a f- and fantastic... Uh, leader in the in the field of open science or open research and she has that motto of every little helps Mm -hmm. so if you can just share your code however messy that code is you share it and you've done a good deed for the day Mm -hmm. we're not expecting you to be full-blown open science and nothing else
2: so if if someone were to be listening and let's say be interested in you know doing though, very yeah. any yeah. little helps and yeah. like s- trying to get started with this what would be a good place where they can learn more about it
0: Well there's a great open science initiative called the Riot Science Club that they <laughs> can come every now but uh, plug. yeah yeah No I mean there there are lots of things to to ease your way into it um, so the most obvious one would be to look at the the uh, open science MOOC by John Tennant uh so he's based in he was actually based. I think he did his PhD at King's anyway okay. he's based in Paris and he uh, there's a online course and there's different modules and it gradually introduces you to the the different topics I would highly recommend Daniel Lakin's or Lakin's Improving your statistical inferences called Sarah course, so it's completely free. Yeah, so it's it's a a fantastic course. Uh, Thousands of people have done it now, and um, it's completely free. And he just takes you through uh, step by step how to really think Hmm. smartly about your analyses that you do.
2: It's, it's really interesting that there are so many resources that seem to be out there for yeah. people who are interested in that. But at the same time, people don't necessarily seem to be aware of them. It's like
0: overwhelming a, how, yeah, how yeah. much help you have. Like, I know,
2: I know for me, for example, like yeah. I'm in my, the second year of my PhD, yeah. and I don't think I was very aware of open science until I went to the uh, British Neuroscience Association yeah. conference a few weeks ago, and they had, like, an open science yeah. uh, sort of workshop. Yeah. And, yeah, you just realise there's so many things you could be doing.
0: Yeah, so the, the UK Reproducibility Network, which I'm the local lead here, so UKRN is uh, a sort of peer-led consortium, and it's, it's headed by Marcus Manafo, who was? It, yeah, was he, he, has, he
2: gave a brilliant talk. Yeah, he's amazing. He,
0: yeah, so he does his usual talk about yeah. uh, the ecosystem, and and then there's Dorothy Bishop at Oxford, mm. uh, Chris Chambers at uh, Cardiff, and then there's Malcolm McLeod uh, in Edinburgh.
2: It's very interesting because these yeah. are these are all you know big names mm-hmm. and kind of PIs like running their own mm-hmm. research groups, but for us who are early career researchers, like PhD students, postdocs, who some of us may not have, you know, PIs that may be supportive or even yeah. aware of open science. What would you advise on that? Like, what, what can we do? Uh, yeah, kind of pushing bottom up.
0: Yeah, so I mean, that just bouncing back off the the previous point. So the UK are, and they are trying to put together e-learning materials as to try and address this problem. Hmm. Just a centralized sort of repository where people can go and do a short course. And that's actually how I was introduced to the UKRN, was in January I did a workshop and it sort of introduced me to these things. But it's true that one of the biggest blocks is not necessarily the enthusiasm of the the students and the, the early career researchers, it's the... It's the lack of enthusiasm mm. from their PIs that's yeah. a major I barrier. Guess they've
2: been doing research in the same way for such a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot you can say. You know, you can say that some have a vested interest in their mm. brand, which is the extreme mm. end of the kind of cynicism spectrum. But then you can go others that have a sort of fixed way of doing things, and they don't want to deviate yeah. from that. And they also have time constraints, so they just can't. And in some ways, they view as the postdocs and PhDs as, as an extension of them. Mm. So they're the ones that have to do the training but it's difficult to sort of convince your pi over. Yeah.
2: I think it's it's interesting what you just mentioned with the vested interest bit because we were talking about this before you right. came in. Okay. And it's the idea that academia is such a sometimes, you know, cutthroat environment yeah. and you have to, you know, publish or perish and all that. Do you feel like open like some people may be scared of open science and the idea that it might impede, you know, their their progress in their career?
0: Yes, absolutely. That's one of the biggest challenges that I come across when trying to persuade somebody over uh to open research is is that is it lucrative mm. is it as lucrative as standard practice yeah, cause it's
2: great like it all sounds good but can yeah. you actually you know be a successful scientist yeah
0: and, and there are ma- ways and means to do that mm. I don't know what the most compelling argument is but the one that springs to mind is is one that Chris Chambers said so one of the Fears that people have is, is being scooped. So if mm. they do a preprint and then they yeah. put it on a preprint server, then um, everybody can see. Mm. Now you could say that that's a great way to give other people your work, or you could say, well, it's time stamped, it's got a DOI, mm. so if anybody dares to try to palm it off as their own, then you can just say, well, hang on. That protocol that they've implemented seems spectacularly like mine. Mm. So in a way, you it it is it is an arms race with competing labs particularly mm. in intensive research intensive areas but if you can put a DOI on this idea then you've got IP you've got intellectual property Do you feel rights. like
2: that's something where registered reports could come into play? Like yeah I think be explaining what that is as well
0: Yeah so a registered report is uh, it was designed to nail down the problem of harking so hypothesizing after the results are known so if you allow that then you get into things like data mining or fishing and uh, the garden of forking paths so the easiest way to do this is to register your protocol mm-hmm. as as thoroughly and as comprehensively as you can. So this includes the statistical plan. So when people think of registering the protocol, they think of clinicaltrials.gov, which is a, quite an ineffectual mm. uh, way to, to register your protocol. Yeah. So the OSF, which Chris Chambers promotes, it has like a two-page form mm. that you fill out And it's your hypotheses, one, two, three, and so on, and what methods, what analyses you're going to do. And you have to give a blow-by-blow account of what you're going to do. So you can have that as just a registered protocol or pre-registration, but you can go one step further, and that's a registered report, which is you submit this protocol to a journal that publishes registered reports, and then it goes through a round of peer review. And so you get it back, and it's back and forth. And then when you agree, you get an IPA, which is not Mm -hmm. an Indian pale ale. I wish it was. (laughs) But it's the next best thing, which is in principle acceptance. And so basically what that says is, so long as you do, as you've said, what you were going to do, after you've collected the data and analysed it and written it up, uh, we will publish your results. So then you collect the data, submit it, well, write it up, submit it, and then you go through a final peer review, which is mm. sort of what the traditional, uh, when you normally do it, and then they decide. Mm. And typically you do get that Yeah,
2: that, sound, that sounds really important because we all know how disappointing it is when you run an experiment and you don't get significant results you know you get p.051 and that yes, suddenly yes. is the end of yes, your career that was, yeah
0: so and, harking is one yeah. and then the publication bias is another yeah
2: exactly like yeah. all of the negative results so i think that this might actually be a good place to kind of open up the discussion to our panel but before we move on elisa is going to tell us about some exciting events happening in and around king's
1: as you guys know this podcast is all about the postdoc lips that is currently happening and how difficult it is to be postdoc or get a postdoc in this day and age and there is a really interesting event coming up in september called shaping postdoc culture which is the second national postdoc meeting it's taking place in london at queen mary university and it's all about generating solutions to current postdoc career challenges and opportunities for networking and career development So the day-long event will be full of interesting panel discussions as well as a keynote address from the Associate Director of the Research and Innovation Talent UK, Dr. David McAllister. The event is free, so there's no excuses, guys. And if you can't make the actual event, then I do believe they are going to be live-streaming some of it, so you can check that out also online. So just a recap, it's happening on Friday the 13th of September, and it's from 9 o'clock in the morning till 4 o'clock, just in East London. You can have a nice coffee.
2: So we have Elisa and Harris, who are PhD students as well, who have just joined us to chat about this. So, hi. hi, I'm Elisa.
3: Hi, guys, I'm Harris.
2: So we were talking just before the break, we were talking about uh, registered reports, and I know that there are a lot of people who are like sceptical of this mm-hmm. or are not very sure whether they should be doing it. So I was just wondering, like Harris and Lisa, have you guys registered your
1: research? Harris, have you registered your research?
3: Um, I'm trying to think back to the protocol in my uh, ethics application so it's, it's definitely supposed to be registered on clinicaltrials.gov but I, I can't remember how much detail I'm supposed to put on there what about you Elisa?
1: I mean I'm just looking I'm staring at you from across the table with fiery eyes because you are <laughs> trying to skirt around this you haven't registered. No you know, I, course, have I haven't it's, it's, <laughs> why Harris it's, you naughty boy? <laughs> um,
3: not it's a cultural thing right it's not something that i've seen people do around me do you know what i mean i've seen people do power calculations and grant applications and other things that are sort of the day-to-day of being a researcher i've not heard people pencil in their diary you know i'm registering my protocol or my research on what some... do
2: you think that is little
3: i just well i don't know historical reasons it's new,
1: it's,
3: yeah, new it's, a, so it's a new thing so it
1: sounds like you need to attend one of sam's meetings to learn what to do yeah
0: what why is it new for you though well, I thought clinical trials, I mean, that's been around for a while.
3: Oh, yeah, no, I understand. So my research itself isn't a clinical trial. Right. But we use clinicaltrials.gov as an open platform. Right. Uh, so it's the right. only sort of place where
0: you can sort of... It, yeah, it's, it, or, or, it's not
3: personal. the only place. It's, uh, it's just the most used uh, yeah. in my field. And so when I was asked where I was going to uh, publish the, the trial... Someone suggested Who trans- asked you? Was that
2: one of your supervisors? No, it
3: was at, um, the R and D department at the hospital. Okay. Yeah, I mean, th- this is the thing about this is the thing about registered reports
0: and what puts some people off. Not necessarily what you've said, but uh, one thing that is a barrier to people doing protocols is they just don't have time. What you know, you know, I've got ten things to do. I've got ten pounds to spend each day. Where do I spend it? Do I spend it on doing this protocol, which will take? ages and ages but the thing with registered reports is is that everything that you do in a registered report is what you do when you write up so all you're doing is you're shifting all the work that you would do at the back end to the front end and in fact what people do when they do do a registered report is that they say the most pleasurable thing about it is writing the paper which is the last thing you would expect most people to say when they do research that usually writing a paper is a torturous thing they have to get it all formulated in their mind in a linear way and then they have to do the analysis. and all this But in a registered report, it forces you to do all that thinking at the beginning, and you get it out of the way, and when you write the paper, it's an absolute breeze. So people just knock it out, and especially because you have to go through peer review. So I'm not saying that you should do a registered report, but you should seriously consider doing a protocol just to get it crystal clear and concrete in your mind probably not for you but other people as well can who I, are nervous about tech. can i ask
2: then i was just yeah. curious like where because because i've never done it yeah um what's usually the time frame because obviously they do get peer-reviewed don't they at cortex so does it take quite a yeah. long time like does it take as long as it would for a regular journal i don't
0: one? i don't know exactly the t- well uh it depends so mm. um very diplomatic aren't yeah <laughs> it dip- no so with a normal journal it's what three months when oh, you, you you sometime. yeah yeah so you you submit it and if you don't get a desk rejection it's mm. about three months before you get something back and then you don't know whether you so if you do and you go through a round review it could be six months to when you finally submit it for for final publication but with registered reports at cortex which is chris james's sort of journal and where they really um powered forth with registered reports i think it's it's a lot less than that, but I can't give you the exact time. It's either in weeks or a lot fewer okay. months. So it's, it's a very short space of time. The biggest problem with registered reports is just de- going desk, re- desk rejection. It's not actually the peer review. It's the is desk rejection. because
2: of the design of the study being flawed? Or cause yeah. in that case, I guess it's better to hear it then than after yeah, you've done so data collection. exactly.
0: So there is, uh, they, they have a high standard, so mm-hmm. you have to get through. So you have to obviously write clearly, and that's why they do two pages. But, yeah, so, so it's... the But the, like I say, you, the, the lag is mainly in your writing up. Mm-hmm. So it's, not, it's even before you've submitted it to the journal that you want to submit it to.
1: Don't you run the risk, then, of experiments being, you know, stopped dead before they can even take off? Like, if you submit a report for registration mm-hmm. and and then you get the feedback, well, we're not going to publish this, it's a worthless yeah. experiment, yeah, yeah. then... You know, yeah. that experiment never gets done. That thing never gets tried. What yeah. that, well,
0: what? you shouldn't be doing the experiment anyway.
1: Well, I mean, who's mm-hmm. to say it's a bad experiment? Yeah, well, exactly. But
0: that's, that's the peer review, right? You know, but you should have formulated a, a rigorous study anyway. I, before. How, you, so you should not be in the business of science.
1: Oh, thank you if, very much. If, if, <laughs> not, not you particularly. If, yes, if you are yes, a person, if not. you have
0: a person who submits a flaky protocol... Yeah. Right and it gets rejected and it's sort of blown out of the water, then mm. it's clear that you are not up to scratch. That protocol is not up to scratch. And
1: okay, so, I mean, I guess then this this feeds in quite nicely to my kind of worry about why I haven't registered my any of my studies. So what I'm doing is super novel, right? And I'm not, okay. like, blowing this my own it. horn. <laughs> I'm just saying it, I've, you know, literally there is no literature out there. I Literally, there's no literature. Um, and so there's nothing for me to reference. And so the, the way in which I'm planning to do my analysis, it's almost a bit like a stab in the dark. I'm just okay. going for it. What would you advise me to encourage me to register my So approach? a
0: reader of a, a conventional peer-reviewed paper finds it very difficult to distinguish what the actual researcher intended uh, their analysis that they intended to run versus analysis that they did when they saw their data. Yeah. Okay. And that's a problem and yeah. the reason why that's a problem is because you you don't know whether the researcher tortured their data until it gave them the answer that they wanted mm. and that could very well be a false positive. So what you do in a registered report you make a strong line distinction between confirmatory so what you planned to test and then exploratory and then that helps the reader. Mm. So the data is still valuable and what you've, your work is still valuable, providing all the checks and balances have been done in the initial stages and it's passed the rigorous test. But it's allowed the reader to say, OK, this is what the author thought was going to be the case, but it didn't quite pan out. That's a registry report. But you can also do a, an exploratory register report where you say, a priori, there's nothing to base my plan on, so I'm going to really just do some phishing Hmm. And that's OK, that's because cool. you've you've said that at the front end. Yeah. It's just trying to be as open and as transparent as you can.
1: How many platforms are there that offer this kind of exploratory registered report? Uh,
0: well, <laughs> if you go to the OSF, the OSF, Open, what does that the say open Science Framework, right. so the, op- the Open Science Framework was designed by Brian Nozick and his team in Charlottesville in the States. And it's a it's a database where you can run experiments on, you can store your data on there, you can it basically you can store anything and do anything on there. And it's it's seen as the central repository used for people that are interested in open science. And on there, part of that is a registered reports sort of module. And it will show you all the journals that accept registered reports, templates, it can show you other registered protocols. Uh, so, for example, there's a registered protocol. I think a registered protocol for for neuroimaging, which is one of the most gnarliest things yeah, to, to to put into uh, as you as you know. Yeah. So there there is there there are examples there, and Zotero. You can I think I saw somewhere floating a few months back on Twitter somebody had created a bibliography of published registered reports, and there's actually somebody that's done a whole PhD thesis as a registered. Every single thing is registered report. I Mm. think that's the case. But anyway, there are things out there that will help you do that. Mm. The the other thing that I will also say is that when you do a registered report as a PhD student, you definitely don't know as much as you would do at the end of your PhD. So then you're devising your you're you're developing this protocol and you register it and you run all the analysis that you think you're going to run but then in the three years that you collect your data you find all of these fantastic analyses you've been to the riots club you've learned all these great things right so what do you do when you look back and you go oh my god this is terrible what did i was thinking this and now my hands are tied i can't do anything i haven't really got a satisfactory answer to that i did propose i did pose it to chris (laughs) chambers and he said but again if you're going to do a registered report and you're going to tie yourself to that, mm. you have to make damn sure that what you're going to do is as rigorous and as reproducible and as I
2: think that's a, that's advanced
0: a, as possible. But
2: that's a really, sorry, <laughs> that's a really interesting concern because I, I think that's one of my main worries and I'm really keen on all of this. But I think, as you said, as a PhD student, you're constantly learning and every single week I go to like a new stats course and I learn about a, this new mm. technique and I'm like, oh, I should do that in my research. And I don't know, like, I feel like if I were to register my plan, then that would stop me from being yeah. able to...
0: I've been, I mean, I don't, there's no sort of one size fits all for mm. this. But my guess is usually, because here you do a transition report, right? After your first year, you write up what you're going to do in the next two, three years, right? Uh, at my old university, it was a qualifying report. And your first year should be where you, where you learn what you're going to do and you do your best to do that. So you do have plenty of time to to make as watertight as possible a registered protocol.
3: I was just going to say on that topic, is it that we are not sufficiently prepared as PhD students wanting to register our protocols to have a well-defined experiment or an experiment that we're confident will deliver results? Are we jumping straight from undergraduate, master's or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and straight into actually doing work as a PhD student without having, you know, seeing what the data looks like in the field, what are the questions that are uh, suitable for a PhD to answer. This is why I said open science is a spectrum of
0: practices. If registered reports are not for you, then there are loads of other things you can just do the simple things of just sharing your data sharing the code and basically saying you have a crack at it see if you can get what I can get and if we do great if we don't I need to go back and and do it and you can do that in different forms you can just do a preprint, and mm. submit the data and then you might get feedback from your peers ideally probably not it depends on the field mm. But there are other statistical techniques that you can do. So, for example, there's a a thing called specification curve or a multiverse analysis. I don't know whether you've heard of the Mm -mm. multiverse. No, I I haven't. So so basically, it's commonly the case that there are many, many justifiable ways to analyze your data. Uh, Neuroscience is the sort of exemplar in this, is that there are. In fact, Chris Chambers, not to keep going on about him, in Twitter he said, <laughs> he he said you should you shouldn't <laughs> be in science, you shouldn't be in neuroimaging if you can't squeeze an effect out of the 160,000 different <laughs> yeah. ways you can analyse the mm-hmm. data. So what you do is you say, okay, I've got many, many different ways to analyse the data. All of them are equivalently justifiable. What do I do? So what you say is, okay, let's just take a random selection and run all those. So you could say, out of the thousands I've got, let's take 500 or 50 or whatever, and then you run it. And then what you see is what is the most commonly found result, what seems to be the picture that's emerging. So there you have shown all of your exploratory analysis, and you've been completely transparent about it. And you've said, okay, look, I didn't know really what to choose, what was the most optimal analysis, so here it is. And Amy Orben, who's at uh, Oxford now Cambridge, she did uh, a paper on this, and it was uh, looking at social media uh, use in teenage years. And I haven't read the paper, but it basically challenged the idea that excessive social media use can have detrimental Mm -hmm. mental health Mm -hmm. implications. And she was on the news and everything. And she sort of uh, she was on the Everything Hurts podcast talking about this, and she said she referred to the specification curves like a GPS in uh in the garden of forking paths um so that is a way around it mm. if you don't have a clear concrete analysis plan that you are willing to commit to mm.
2: i think one of the other things that harris and i were talking about before you came in was because you just mentioned that you know when you're a phd student you're a bit constrained and what you can do or yeah. you have time to do and again one of the big things in your imaging is sample size And when you're a PhD student, especially if you're looking at, you know, uh, quite rare genetic Mm. abnormalities, like you might end up having a very small sample size. Yeah. Is there any sort of um, initiative or anything where people might be able to pull data, like an open data sort of?
0: um, Yeah, so there's the UK Biobank as well. That's an open data. There's a lot. I mean, there are lots of things. And it is true that you... Uh, with new imaging, particularly, you have you struggle with sample size. The other alternative is to collaborate. You can do a multi-site thing, but again, it, it's more a case of who you know than 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 money, of course.
3: But isn't that the issue? The reason the UK Biobank mm-hmm. is so successful and is because they have some hefty funding put behind them, and so the researchers are not bearing that risk. Whereas if you're a small group, you've done that hard labour of curating or acquiring that data to then expect to make that freely available seems almost unfair, right? And and I appreciate the different ways you can carry out open science, like you mentioned about the register reports and the open data and open sourcing your code. You know, for somebody who's quite adept at software development, open sourcing code is something he'd be used to doing and has relatively low cost. And in fact, he'd probably be using open source libraries himself. But open sourcing data in terms of the cost it takes to develop that database is not comparable to the code
1: and the ethics of course you have to get consent of every single person who's willing to have their data shared
3: yeah yeah
0: yeah i mean i can can only go back to the point that you you don't have to do everything okay so if you have to it's a trade-off it's just what you can do What what is feasible to you what is realistically possible for you I mean yeah I mean you do people do struggle with sample size but you know you could say well instead of doing a simple ANOVA I'm not going to do that I'm going to do Bayesian analysis you know I'm going to try and uh, address that problem uh, you know there are uncomfortable truths and realities about science that you're just going to have to accept mm it's just that can i be satisfied in myself that i have tried as much as i can with what i have to be as open research as possible and i think then you can sort of sleep soundly at night if we
3: if we have that that future where it's sort of open science is embedded in our culture maybe it's not perfect but everybody's doing as much as they can science is messy and but so what does that future look like in terms of you know how our institutions are going to look, how our our research and collaboration's going to look if every do you see what I mean yeah, it's like- such a radical departure from the previous culture, I feel like the way we arrange ourselves as groups and institutions won't exist. <laughs>
1: existential
3: crisis what what i mean mean, to say is is that i mean science but especially health sciences research is by its very nature multidisciplinary right so a lot of us are using neuroimaging data i'm a mr physicist and i use neuroimaging data obviously for very different questions perhaps we coalesce around techniques rather than other specialties do you see what i mean what do you think how will that future look like (laughs) can i predict the future Uh, yeah (laughs) Right. A, I I
0: can't give you a neat answer because I've not really thought about it. But science, by its nature, if you were to look back on uh, research ten years ago, and if you were to transport yourself ten years ago and look and, be, and know the future, it would be it would seem unrecognisable to you now. So it's very difficult to say that, and that's an obvious thing to say. What I can be sure of is that there are a growing number of funders who are very amenable to uh, studies that practice open science and Amy Orben is exemplary in this so she actually went to charities effectively she said look this is a problem that we have there's lots of degrees of freedom when people analyse their data and they're not always open about it and sometimes they're doing it intentionally but most of the time it's they're just doing what is standard practice and they probably um, they don't know and they and they think what they're doing is right. So why don't I do this fancy analysis? I analyze all these different types of ways that people have done it before, and then I can see what the look at the land is. And that's what she did, and she convinced uh, her funders to to fund her. You look at Wellcome Trust, who are now um, funding a lot of open research initiatives, and Ben Ben Bleesdale who I'm glad, happy to say is coming to the Riots Club. <laughs> I suppose, what plug's that? Is that number five? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to get ten. Uh, and then, uh, so uh, he's trying to fund this, but he's trying to change research culture. But the one things that we haven't really talked about is that, is that as Kirsty Whitaker always says, that open research is, a, is a really an umbrella term for lots of different things. It's not just the practices of better statistical analyses or better research integrity. It's also the culture that comes with it. So one of the nasty things about the publisher post culture is that you are in a research-intensive environment and bullying and harassment does occur. But if you know that somebody doesn't have a vested interest in plugging a particular narrative in mm. their research and they're so bent out of shape through years of being grizzled face mm. in the f- in, you know uh, trying to get their paper published with a rigged publication system mm. they're not going to whip their phd and postdocs into uh, submission mm. <laughs> they're just going to say okay you you do what you like and then we'll just be open and transparent about it and then we'll see what happens and then if we find something great then we we can get funding for that it's a very very different ecosystem that is being cultivated and i think that there will be uh, whole research units that will die out and wither away as is necessary i think but there will be loads to replace them and there will be a lot fairer a lot more open a lot more rigorous
1: So that concludes our podcast for today thank you for joining us special thanks to sam for sharing about his work in open science at king's and to ali for hosting this episode and to harris and myself for giving our questions and opinions if you're interested to learn more about open science then consider joining sam's initiative riot science which will be meeting weekly from september at the denmark hill campus In our upcoming podcast we want to talk about all things PhD so as always if you would like us to talk on a particular topic then please tweet us at postocalypse18 or postocalypsepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, till next time.